Well, hello. Uh, it's 10.30 now, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, if other people come in, it's totally fine. They can join us. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. I'm the campus minister at UNC in Chapel Hill. Go uh, Heels. that's right. The University of National Champions, as we call ourselves. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I wanted to start off this seminar by saying, you know, if you're here, this is the seminar on sexual shame and dealing with sexual shame for men, and I don't see it as my job to kind of like beat you all up on this. I want you to know this is part of my story too, that everybody you meet is sexually broken on some level. That's your parents, that's your grandparents, that's your pastor, your campus minister. Everybody's sexually broken, and so I'm approaching this out of my own story of sexual brokenness and dealing with these things from my own life, um, but also uh, as someone who's gotten a master's of counseling and uh I led a group therapy for sexual addiction in St. Louis for three years with the ministry there. So I come to this um, with kind of, kind of that background, and so that, that should color some of this. So I just want you to know, this is not like, um, what was that, like Wild at Heart, or there was another, Every Young Man's Battle. Did you ever read that book? Um, it's a terrible book. You should never read that. But um, I, don't, I don't approach it from those, those positions. I approach it more from a redemptive and counseling standpoint. So, if you would, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. As we start, I want to say that the beginning of the Bible, God makes man, and he sees it's not good for man to be alone. And so, God takes that man, he parades all the animals of the earth before him and helps that man see that none of these animals are a good helper for him. None of them are a match. And so he makes a naked woman. And he gives this naked woman to a naked man and the very first song of the Bible is that naked man looking at this naked woman and saying, at last, this is bone of my bones, this is flesh of my flesh, and God's standing over them and blessing their union. I tell you this because I want to start off this talk by saying that God loves sex. I know that he loves it because the Bible says that he made it. I know that he loves it because it's a picture in Ephesians 5 of Christ's love for the church. He loves it because it's the way that he physically makes people. It's the way that he helps to keep marriages firing on all cylinders. It's a good thing in itself. It's a pleasurable thing. It can take the edge off the day in a way that nothing else can do. Good sex will make you walk bow-legged. Even bad sex is worth your time. God loves sex. And the reason that you're here is not uh, because there's a problem with sex or that sex is bad. It's because there's a problem with us. It's the problem with you. I think as we approach this topic, a lot of times we can think to ourselves, you know, my problem is that I'm 20 years old and I've got a penis. Of course I'm struggling with this stuff. That's not it. Your problem is that you're a sinner. And you've taken a good thing that God has made and you've worshipped it. You've worshipped the pleasure that comes with it. You've worshipped the escape that it provides in your life. You've worshipped the bodies that you've seen. Many of you all feel deeply conflicted about sex. Because you both love and you hate it. You love to worship it but you hate what the worshiping of it does to you. You hate the shame and the secrecy. You hate being numb to yourself and the people around you. You hate that you can't look at a woman and not imagine her in a porn movie. 
And so I want to say as we approach this for today and tomorrow, that my goal here is not to fix your broken sexuality. I think that's Jesus' job. I don't think that I can do that in a two-day talk. But my goal is to help you start down the path to as much healing as you can get in this lifetime. To start to think about what does it mean for you to actually heal from these things and to grow into the man that God made you to be. Think about this. You all know the story of the Titanic, right? Uh, this giant ocean liner crossing the sea on its main voyage. It gets taken out by an iceberg. We all saw the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I saw it with my mom in the sixth grade, just me and her. It was a cute little son-mom date. Um, but do you know how much of the iceberg that took out the Titanic was actually above the water? It's only about 10%. The part of the iceberg that sank the Titanic wasn't even above the surface. It was the part that was underwater that took that boat down. And I say that because as we deal with this, you have to deal with the underlying issues that drive sexual sin. That stopping behavior is not enough. It's not even really the start. It's like trying to push the iceberg down into the water and hoping that somehow it's just not going to scrape your insides out. That's just not the case. So what I want to help you do over the next two days is to see why you do some of the things you do. That's mainly what we're going to talk about today. And then how to deal with those things. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow. Otherwise, this thing is just going to keep popping up. So today I'm going to talk about what drives the sexual sin. Tomorrow I want to talk about practical strategies and how to deal with it. So let me pray for us, and if you would, turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Father, you are so good to us to give us your word, to walk with us in the midst of something that just feels like this intractable problem. Um, Lord, help us to see your grace and your truth um, for our shame, for our secrecy, Lord, for our brokenness, for the ways in which um, we just feel like we've struggled with things um, for so long. And we don't see an end in sight. And we wonder, how can you be at work in this? Lord, give us hope. Lord, walk with us in it. Help us to find brothers to walk with us in it as well. And God, be with us today as we sit in this hot classroom and we talk about your work in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me read First uh, Thessalonians 4, 1-8 through 8 for us. This is Paul speaking. He says, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how that you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave His Holy Spirit to you. Look especially here at verses 3 and 4. I mean, I'm not sure they're doing this seminar this year, but if you are looking for a seminar on finding God's will for your life, don't worry about it, because I've got your answer right here. That God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified which means that you would die to your sin and live fully to God. Then, In other words, that you would be like Jesus in your outside and in your inside. And what does Paul say is a huge block to that sanctification? Sexual immorality. Think about it like this. 
The Bible says that God's work in our life is to deal primarily with three things in you and I. He has got to deal with our hurt, the wounds that we have. Isaiah 25 talks about that one day God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's got to deal with our sin. That one day not only will you not sin, you will not be able to sin. Like in the same way that now you can't fly or shoot laser beams out of your eyes, you will not be able to sin against other people or against God. It's incredible, right? And God's dealing with our immaturity. That Christ's work in your life is to make you a fully mature man. Totally wise, totally patient, totally loving, totally holy. Everything. That if you were to sit here fully sanctified, totally like Jesus, those are the things that God would have taken care of in your life. Your wounds, your hurt, your sin. Which means that the biblical understanding of God's is that we all start off as just the opposite of those things. The by nature of being a sinner who has sinned against, that we are wounded, wicked boys. We're wounded by a broken view of sexuality and what it means to be a man. We're wounded by the things that we've done. We're wounded by the things that have been done to us. We're wicked, and at the same time as we know that sexual sin and other sins are killing us and killing our ability to connect with friends and people and that we're sinning against God, that there are times when we'll do anything to fall deeper down that rabbit hole. Right? And we're boys in the sense that when we feel anger or boredom or sadness or stress, we turn to sex to avoid the difficulties and the challenges those things point to. That instead of taking those things as an opportunity to grow into wise men that can walk into the challenges that life presents, we avoid them and so we stay like little boys, immature and unwise. And real sanctification in your life will only take place as you deal with those wounds, that immaturity, and that sin. This may be a little dated now, um, but do you remember the show How I Met Your Mother? Has anyone ever watched that? Some people haven't, some people have. Uh, if you ever watched that show, it's basically like the 90s show Friends, but in a bar, the more modern era. Uh, there's a character in there called Barney, and he's consistently ranked one of the best sitcom characters of all time. If you ever watched the show, I think you probably can't help but want to be like Barney on some level. He's funny, he gets girls, he wears a cool suit. But on the other hand, the show is just completely aware of how empty Barney is. That he is as sad as he is funny. Because he's like this oversized sex baby pretending to be a man. He's wounded because his father left him and his mother is also a very sexually broken woman. He's immature because he wants to connect with women, but he just can't. He doesn't know how. He's sinful. I mean, he uses people. He's greedy. He lives entirely for himself and his own pleasure. Barney Stinson in How I Met Your Mother or Don Draper, if you want to go to the other end of like class in terms of television, from Mad Men. Those are two of the most accurate portrayals of sex addiction on TV. Those guys live in a cycle of sexual sin that a lot of us also mirror. Have you ever wondered, how do you get from swearing to yourself that you will never look at porn again, or you will never hook up with someone again, to like the next day looking at porn? Have you ever wondered that? Let me show you. This is what's called the Carnes Addiction Cycle. Uh, it starts up here with this wounded, wicked boy. And it moves down to shame, 
to fantasy, to triggers, which are basically, what are the things that make me want to do this? When this thing happens, it triggers me. To rituals, what are the things that I just... It seems like this is what I'm always doing right before I look at pornography or I masturbate or I go and hook up. To acting out, which is the actual deed itself. To despair, which is the feeling that you have right afterwards. To shame, which is basically just self-hatred and accepting my enslavement to this thing. Whatever it is. Let me flesh this cycle out for you. What if you grew up in a household where there's this kind of unspoken rule? That hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And nobody ever said that to you. It wasn't like crocheted on a napkin and hung in your kitchen. But it was there and you could feel it. You like figured it out when you were five. That hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And maybe you didn't necessarily feel like you kind of fit in at times. Or you always knew what to wear or how to be cool. You always maybe felt kind of awkward. But man, when it came to hard work and getting things done and achieving and putting your nose to the grindstone and just doing it, man, hard work was how we're going to be okay. And we didn't make mistakes. You really drank deeply of that rule. Because love and dignity in your household were based upon this unspoken thing. But what's on the other side of that rule? On the other side of that legalism? The other side of legalism is license. They're really two sides of the same coin. And so for work hard, the opposite of that is what? Play hard, right? But maybe you're not going to go out and get plastered. It costs money. You've got a reputation to maintain. You don't have time because, you know, you've got to get a lot of stuff done. But you need some way to blow off the steam. So you start to fantasize about what's going on. You know, with maybe girls in your class, girlfriends, maybe hooking up with other people, or maybe, you know, just... Googling stuff online, see what comes up. Right? You start to plan how we use pornography or how you would, when's the next time you could use it? You start to fantasize about those things. And then something happens. Maybe you hear from some friends that someone's phone got hacked and there's some new, new pictures out there. Maybe you watch an episode of Game of Thrones or Westworld. Uh, maybe you've had a hard week and finals are just really bearing down on you. But you need some way to blow that steam off, right? Maybe you're just stressed or bored. And so you stay up really late. This is where we get to our rituals. You stay up late by yourself. Maybe you drink some beers by yourself. Maybe you've had a tough day or a tough week and your roommates are gone for the afternoon from your dorm room. But it's always like the same thing. It's always this pattern. It's this ritual that you go through. And you start to look at things which are not pornography but kind of bump up against pornography, like women in swimsuits on Facebook, or who's that cute girl that I see in class, or maybe just Googling the phrase spring break and just doing an image search on it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with spring break. Everybody goes on spring break. But just to see what's out there, just what pops up. But you know that this is just the start because this is how it always starts. And five minutes later you say, Forget it, whatever, my willpower is broken down, and you act out, right? You move from somewhat scandalous things to porn videos on your phone or your laptop, and boom, it doesn't take long, but boom, right after it's done, you feel like crap. Like just this deep sense of despair 
And you make the same vows again. You move into the shame of never again. That was the last time. No one is going to find out. But you know, like deep down, you know, they'll probably do it again next week. Or maybe you've got a lot of willpower a month from now. But you get up and you dust yourself off because what other choice do you have? And that starts the whole cycle over again. And nothing has changed about our situation. We still have the same deadlines in class. We still feel lonely. We still feel hurt over our parents' divorce. And we've wasted more of our life diving deeply into something that makes us feel gross. And does it develop us into the kind of strong husband or father or friend that we hope someday we will be? And our problem as we approach this thing is that usually we try to maybe stamp out the acting out. Like, I'm just going to stop looking at porn and masturbating, right? Or, you know, maybe if we're really thoughtful about it, we're going to stop fantasizing. As though, you know, you can control your thoughts to that degree. But we're, gonna, we're only handling one of these things. And what we don't see is it's a whole cycle. There's a lot more to this than what's going on. You see... What's giving this thing energy is not necessarily the porn. But the porn is there. And that certainly rewires your brains in some ways. Porn is a force in itself. But if you took that out, you could replace it with something else. Alcohol. Work. If you were to talk to some of your female friends, eating, and the way they see their bodies, that's all, it all looks very similar to this. Because the problem is not necessarily the porn. That is a problem. The problem is what's going on up here. This wounded, wicked boy. And the shame that comes out of that. And if you would be free from pornography, then you have to do as much work on yourself as you do and not just looking at pornography and masturbating. Otherwise, it's like you're just cutting off the branches of a tree, but never cutting off the roots, and so stuff will always grow back. There's a story of a, a guy who's what's called the ancient church fathers. These are desert fathers. So like, think like pre-monk monks. So like 2nd, 3rd century A.D. This guy is living in and around Egypt and, you know, Greco-Roman world at this time, very pagan, lots of sexual morality just kind of in the culture. And he decides, you know, like, lust is a big problem for me. I'm going to do what it takes. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to move out into the desert and I'm not going to see anybody. Like, I'm lusting after all these women here in the city. I'm going to move to where I see no one. And that will stop the lust. So he does this huge move, and he moves out to the desert to just have this, like, you know, 40-year quiet time. And he gets out there, and he finds himself still kind of wrestling with lust. And so, and I'm not advocating this, repeat, not advocating that this is a cautionary tale. He does this incredibly extreme thing, and he castrates himself by himself in the desert to deal with his lust. And he chronicles the whole thing, and he ends the story by saying, but I was still thinking about dancing girls. Like he'd moved out to the desert, he'd chopped off his junk, and he's still lusting after, after these people that he saw, who knows when, after all these experiences that he had. Because he was just really dealing with this, but he wasn't dealing with all this other stuff. We've got to deal with the root issue. Look at verse 8 here in 1 Thessalonians. 
I wish I could dive more deeply into this passage, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but I'm just going to do this. Therefore, whoever disregards this, what Paul is saying about lust and sexual morality and sanctification, disregards not man but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Look, when we run into something like this, something that's stronger than us, that we can't beat, that we don't have the power to beat on our own, we need a greater power to come in and deal with it for us. And what Paul is saying is that God has given you that greater power in the Holy Spirit. In John's account of Jesus' life, he tells us on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he was eating a last supper with his disciples. And as they're eating, Jesus launches into this long talk about how the fact that he's going away, but that it's for the best because he's going to send them the helper, which is what he's calling the Holy Spirit there. And the word that, that, that Jesus uses for the Spirit there is super rich. It can mean helper in the sense that someone comes alongside of you. It can also mean advocate or counselor in like a legal sense. Where it's like you were on trial and you would have the confidence to go into the courtroom with this kind of helper or advocate and beat whatever charges came your way because they were that good. And that is so important for us because a lot of times we feel like we're on trial. And we feel that, feel that inwardly as we accuse ourselves and go through kind of the list of things that we feel guilty about. Or we hear the voices of other people in our life that have accused us and told us we're no good or terrible. Or it's just kind of this deep sense that people have kind of built into you of worthlessness. Or, and the Bible takes this seriously, so we should take this seriously, Satan. Like the devil is at work in the world. And what Satan means is accuser. So there's lots of times in which we feel accused and we need someone else to come alongside of us and be our legal counselor to speak to those voices that say things like, how can you come to summer conference and sing these songs and pray these prayers and hug these people and walk on the beach with them doing what you've been doing and thinking what you're thinking? Or how can you come and think that God still loves you and considers you his friend or his son when this is like the 5,000th time you've done this thing, and you've sworn you, were, you would stop, but clearly you haven't stopped. But this is huge for us because we can feel like we're on trial. As we studied for finals, as we wrestle with sexual sin, as we put on a bathing suit, it can feel like you're preparing for a defense of yourself. And that as you walk out on that sand, or you sit for that test, or you wrestle with whether or not to pick up your phone or just to go to bed, the prosecution and the defense are really about to get going. And that everything we've done up to that point will be providing evidence for or evidence against that defense. Find out if all your hard work has been worth it, if you're worth it. And what Paul says here is that you are in the Lord Jesus, which means that God looks at you and loves you based on what Jesus has done. That it is not as if Jesus died for you and you get taken out of zero and you've got to like do a bunch of stuff to kind of go up in God's eyes. But it is as if you had never sinned. And that you are the one who left eternity and glory to become a poor peasant man and suffer for people and die for people to save the world. That to be in Jesus means that God gives you everything that Jesus has. 
that for your sake, so that you could be something other than a wounded, wicked boy, Jesus has suffered and was crucified and rose again. Because what's the crucifixion a scene of? It's judgment. It's the end result of this court trial. And for the people like us who spend a lot of times in this internal courtroom, the work of the Holy Spirit, this advocate, this counselor, is to tell you that you are out of the courtroom. That Jesus went into the courtroom and He went on trial for you. That His trial was unjust. That He was a victim. That He was struck. He was beaten down. He was put to death as our substitute. He faced your trial so you could get out. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to get you out of that courtroom by applying the righteous verdict that Jesus should have received to you and then to remind you of that verdict and to work into you all the benefits that come with being connected to Jesus, with being in Jesus. That your identity is not your wounded, wicked self and all the crap and the shame and the guilt and the sin that flows out of that. But your identity is in Jesus. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to convince you of that and to make that true. Which is why Paul is talking so much about it here in 1 Thessalonians. Because here's the deal. That when this starts to happen in your life, that you go from being a wounded, wicked boy to being a beloved son, that you have everything that Jesus has. And that instead of shame, there's self-acceptance. Which is really just grace and truth in your life. That God loves me, God is for me, I'm out of that stupid courtroom. And yeah, I was guilty as hell. But Jesus has died for me. And He loves me. And whatever consequences were coming eternally my way because of this stuff, they're gone. Because this is who I am. Which means that you can deal honestly with yourself and say, yeah, there are times when I really want to look at porn. And I really want to do this stuff. And I really want to hook up with people. But this is who I am. And I really don't need to trust myself. I need to approach myself and my sin and my tendencies and my addiction, or however you want to phrase that, with a deep level of mistrust. Because honestly, I'm a sinner. But honestly, I'm a sinner who's loved by God. And so that's not what I'm going to do anymore. Which means that you can take some of these triggers and you can say, when I feel triggered, I'm going to invite other people in. Especially... especially friends, fellow brothers who are also working through this and that also need help. Part of community, like the real community that we all long for, is to look at other people and say, I need you and you need me. And a lot of us go to a college where, you know, we're not struggling day to day to find food, we necessarily work. What we're really struggling for is community and friendship. What if this was a place where God was working in your life to give you that thing you longed for and needed, which is real brotherhood with other guys? That when you feel triggered, you can invite those guys in. And then it moves you from this. 
from your rituals to real freedom. That I'm free to be myself with my brothers. I'm free to be a beloved son. I'm not defined by my guilt. I'm not defined by my shame. I'm not defined by, all, defined by my past and all the crap that I've done and the ways that I've hurt girls. I've been hurt by other people. I'm defined by Jesus, which means I can be free to work through this stuff. I can be free to fail. I can be free to get back up and invite other people back in. I am free in Christ to put down this thing. I am free in Christ to pick up righteousness and holiness and love, which should replace despair with hope. That, yeah, this is going to be a long process. It's going to be a long process. It's not easy. As long as I spent digging myself into this hole, it's probably about how long it will take me to get out. But I'm going to get out. Because God is at work. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in my life. And He's doing something in me that's similar to what He did in Jesus, which is to work life into a corpse. And so I have hope for the future. I have hope that this is not the whole of my life. I'm moving towards this thing. And so you replace that old, crappy cycle with something that's beautiful and true, which reflects your real identity in Christ. Because make no mistake, guys, this is not primarily about your dealing with pornography and masturbation. I mean, there's some of that in here. But this is about you becoming the man that God made you to be. It is about you putting on a new identity, on your, about you putting on your true identity, and living out of that. This is maybe about you being the person that breaks addictive patterns that have plagued your family for generations, where there's these kind of unspoken rules at work, and that the inverse of those unspoken rules is like secrecy, and shame, and hiding, and just like, I'm going to work real hard, and then I'm going to crash, and the way I'm going to crash is through sexual sin, or alcohol, or drugs, or, you know, who knows what. That maybe this thing is, and God's working this thing into your life, it's not just about you, but it's about your family. It's about your kids, and your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. That you would be the man that God uses to deliver your family from these incredibly unhealthy patterns and helping people that you haven't even met yet, that haven't even been born yet. That's amazing. That's hope, right? Look, this is about your future as a husband and a father and a leader in the church. For me, when I think about it, in my own story, I think about one day standing before God and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, son. I saw how hard you struggled with that. I heard the prayers. I walked with you through the tears. I saw you try out new, a new way of doing relationships with your brothers and kind of run from that and then try it back on and grow into that. I saw you fight this thing. I was with you in that. Well done. Man, that's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. Don't you want that for yourself? That's what this is really about. It's about God's work in your life. 
and freeing you from something that you hate and that He hates, but which isn't you. It's about you becoming who you really are, which is a beloved son. So I want to end with this, and we'll do some Q&A after it. I'll go back to another ancient church father, a guy named Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say his name. Uh, he was a really real dude. He kind of, uh, the first half of his life, he was this uh, guy who grew up in incredibly brilliant, very empty, lived a very pagan life. I've heard it described that he kind of went on a 20-year brothel tour uh, where he was just, he was hooking up with anyone he could hook up with. He had a concubine at one point, uh, but he was also really brilliant. So he's like studying all this uh, ancient Greek philosophy and just dazzling people with this stuff. But then he becomes a Christian and he's got all this baggage from his past life. So he's praying prayers like, Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. Right? Like, I can relate to that guy. Um, he was a really real dude. And there's a story that he tells about going back to his hometown. And he's walking through the public square, kind of like the meeting place of the whole kind of town or city. And he's walking through there, and he sees this lady that he used to be a former lover of his. I mean, a girl he used to hook up with. And she kind of sees him from across the town square, and she raises her hand and kind of makes eye contact with him, and she says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And he just keep, keeps walking, kind of blank-faced, blank and just goes forward. And she stands up and kind of runs towards him, and she says, Augustine, it's me, it's me, it's me. Still nothing from Augustine. Finally, she runs up to him and kind of grabs him by the lapels, and she's right in his face, and she says, Augustine, it's me. It's me. Don't you recognize me? And he looks at her and he says, I know. I know it's you. But it's not me. But he was a new person. He's a beloved son. Look, what you all need to deal with sexual sin and shame is not a better program, it's not necessarily better accountability partners. It's not uh, some new book or some new treatment or just get really mad at yourself or at other people. What you need is that when this thing comes calling and says, it's me, it's me. It's this thing that's totally helped you numb yourself and it's been with you when you're lonely and just takes the edge off the day when you're feeling low. That you would look at that thing and say, I know it's you. I know it's you. But it's not me. I'm a beloved son. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to call my brothers. I'm going to be a new person. I need to work through all this stuff, all this baggage. It's not like you don't come in to Christianity and you suddenly have got all that stuff cleared out. It's not like you can't be a Christian and just build up baggage yourself with women or pornography. You can but what you need to deal with this thing is to look at it and say, it's, it's not me. I'm a new person. I'm a beloved son. I'm not my shame. I'm not my guilt. I'm somebody that God loves. So I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to walk tall. I'm going to go forward in the future. That's my hope for myself. That's my hope for y'all. I'm going to dive more deeply in that tomorrow. But let me pray for us and we'll answer some questions and do some Q&A. Father, you are so gracious to us to give us this time, to give us this sweltering classroom, 
on this hot May day. And uh, Lord, to be with us here, um, to dwell with us as your sons. Uh, Lord, you are infinite, you're eternal. There's so many things that could be more interesting to you than to sit with us today. And yet you said that we're your sons. And so you sit with us, you walk with us. Lord, you make us truly who we are. Would you apply the work of your Son through your Spirit to our hearts? Would you help us to live and act as new men? Would you help us to look at this thing that says, it's me, it's me. Come with me. And say, it's not me. I don't belong to you. I belong to God. I belong to Jesus. He's bought me with his blood. Lord, help us to be those men. Help us to live with hope in the future because we know of your work here in the present together. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. That pretty quickly. Good. Um, let's do some Q&A.